The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. What, what is the most important thing in the Christian life? Uh, this is something I remember clear back in my Bible college days wrestling with. You know, what is the most important thing in the Christian life? Uh, and it could be boiled down to a few things. Uh, I've boiled it down to four options. Now, you may add your own to the list. You're welcome to do that. Um, certainly, one of the top things must be faith, right? Uh, Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, John 1 says, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And we really believe that, you know, our entrance into the Christian life is, is one of faith. So certainly, you can make a good case for faith being uh, the most important thing. Certainly, that's what Martin Luther would have said if he were here this morning. Calvin, they like died defending that principle, that faith was the most important thing. Uh, but then you read other passages like Philippians 2 where it says, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So maybe, maybe worship is the thing. Uh, maybe the thing that we should be most important to us is worshiping God. First uh, Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? So that's another option that may or may not be competing with faith. Um, then there's the great commandment. Right? The great commandment has nothing to do with either faith or worship. Right? It says what? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some would say, well, maybe that's, that is worship. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, but it certainly has its own unique character to love God. Maybe that's the most important thing, right? And then, of course, if we talk about love, you go to John, and John 15 says, As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So now here's a new element. You know, if we're to love God, we're supposed to be obedient, right? Um, and then that brings us kind of full circle because James says, so by faith, so faith by itself, it does not have, if it does not have works, which is obedience, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, so are you confused yet? So which is it? We should take a vote, right? Um, what's most important? What's the thing that we should focus on most? Well, obviously, it's kind of a silly question because obviously they're all important. Although it's interesting how churches have kind of gone to battle over some of these things. And, of course, the Reformation uh, was a battle fought fiercely over this idea of works, which falls kind of under the category of obedience versus faith. And so it is a relevant question and one that often can cause confusion or a dilemma in the life of the believer because... Um, you know, do we, do we work at obedience? Uh, or does that become just legalism, right? Uh, is it all supposed to be worship and it doesn't matter? We just love God. It doesn't matter what you do. Let's you know, the Corinthians kind of followed that track. You know, it doesn't matter. There's no law because it's all about grace and we just love God, right? 
Well, um, one of the great things about the story we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 22, God puts Abraham to the test. And it says, let me just read uh, the first few verses, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. And God says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so very much, and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Uh, Startling and really shocking words from the mouth of God that he asks and requires of Abraham here. Uh, It's really, to me, kind of mind-boggling that God could even think such a thing. And uh, if you dwell much on what this would involve, really, you know, what it would take for Abraham to follow through with this, the images are horrific, right? Uh, this would be a rated R movie, okay? If you, it's horrible, right? And yet God, it says, puts Abraham to the test. What is it God is testing? Is he testing his faith? Is he testing his love? Is he testing his obedience? Is he testing his worship? Does it really matter? Well, to Isaac, it probably matters, right? I mean, you know, he's going to die for this, so it must be important. It's interesting, the, the New Living Translation actually inserts the word uh, faith. It says that later God tested Abraham's faith. I skipped the word because the Hebrew doesn't actually say that. The Hebrew just says God tested Abraham. That's all. What is it, really, that God's testing here? Well, um, it becomes clear, and what I love about this story as we look through it, and we will see, that what God is testing here clearly is all four of those things, that all four of those things are important, and that really they're not four separate elements that somehow compete against each other. But the reality is they are four sides of one pillar of relationship with God. Or to put it another way, they're four strands of a, a strong cord that binds us to God. And they really are four parts of very much the same thing. And that in our life, all four of those things must be operating. Uh, we don't have the luxury or freedom to say, well, we're just going to worship God. And we're not going to really worry about what God wants of us, right? Which is sadly where a lot of Christianity is going today. A lot of Christianity says, well, we just love God and we can live however we want. It doesn't matter because we're all about grace and, and loving God. We don't need to be obedient. That's just being legalistic. But we'll see from Abraham's life that that's not an option. That's not a choice for us. In fact, if we claim to love God, if we claim to worship God, if we claim to walk by faith, then all those things must be mixed and bound together in the glue of obedience and action and responding to what God commands and calls us to. So uh, let's look at the life of Abraham and see how God tests these things and how uh, together these things become not only what God tests, but what equips Abraham to, to pass the test. So let's start off. First thing, what really is God asking here? Uh, this is an incredible request, right? Uh, Abraham, I want you to kill and burn as an offering your son, your very precious, loved, only son. Now, as you read this, you would say, well, God, you forgot. Actually, Abraham has, a, has a, another has other children, has another child. Uh, what about Ishmael? Well, he's gone. Okay. In fact, you know this passage references back to the past. Then, uh, 
God, along with, uh, in collusion with Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, just booted Ishmael. He's gone, right? Uh, clearly, the son left, the son of promise is Isaac. The son that counts is Isaac. And we saw with Abraham, it was not easy for him to send Ishmael away. He didn't even have to sacrifice or kill Ishmael. But it was very heartbreaking for Abraham to do this. It was very difficult. It was his first son who he loved also. And he had to send him away uh, to make space for Isaac as the son of promise. Uh, So it's his son, his only son, his loved son. And God is very careful to give all of those adjectives, right? It's not just a child. It's your only begotten, much-loved child of the promise, okay? So there's two things at stake here for Abraham. First of all, it's his son, right? He's asking Abraham to sacrifice, to kill his child, okay? Which is, you know, how do you do that? Secondly, though, this son was the very son that God promised and through whom God said he would fulfill all of his other promises, right? So not only is, is Abraham being confronted with eliminating his loved child, but he's faced and asked by God to sacrifice, to end what is the sole source and point of all God's promise that he's had to him. Uh, the land, the offspring, the descendants, the blessing to the world, all that hinges on Isaac, and now God says to him, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering, right? Uh, by the way, you know, burnt offerings, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no bypassing the dead, being dead part in this, okay? Abraham was clear what God was asking, to sacrifice, to take the life of his son. Uh, so what is God really asking here? And why would he ask that? Um, well, I think God is is asking of Abraham, and he asks the same thing of us. Okay, what God is asking of Abraham is the exact same thing he asks of us. Uh, firstly, am I truly God? Am I God in your life? All right. Who could make a claim like this? Okay. Uh, you know, my, my guess is that if I were to come up to you and I would say, you know, I want you to show your love and devotion to me. I want you to give me, you know, $10,000. Okay. How many of you would do that? I want your name and address. I want your bank account, right? And nobody would do that, right? I don't care how much you love me. You don't love me that much, right? And the real question is, what right or authority do you have to ask that of me, right? What right does God have to ask something like this of Abraham? Well, the only right he would have is if he was God of the universe, the God who created all things, who made Abraham, who created Abraham, who called Abraham, who had a plan and purpose for Abraham's life. Only God could ask something like this of someone. This is an extreme request. Only God, the ruler of the universe, could do that. So he's asking, uh, Abraham, am I God to you? Do I exercise a place of rule and authority over your life? Right? A rightful place of rule and authority over your life as the God of the universe. Uh, Do we accept him, God as he is, as he's revealed himself as the rightful authority over our life? Or do we make God in our own image? Do we cast God in the light that we like? Do we say, when God asks this of us, do we say, oh, the God I worship wouldn't do that, okay? The God I worship wouldn't ask such an extreme thing. My God would be much more Santa Claus-like, right? Do we make God in our own image, or do we take God as he is, as he reveals himself in Scripture? And honestly, sometimes I don't like everything that God reveals. 
Sometimes His justice, His wrath, His holiness uh, makes me uncomfortable. It demands of me things that I may not want to give. And so God says to Abraham, Am I God to you? Am I Lord over your life? Second thing He's asking of Abraham by this test, What place do I occupy in your life? If I am God, if it's that's true, if I'm creator, if I'm Lord, if I'm sovereign, then I ought to occupy the supreme place in your life. I ought to be rank number one. There should be nothing before me. Okay, later on when he gives the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. I should occupy first supreme place in your life. Um, not even your son, not even my own promises to you should be more important to you than I am. That's a tough question, okay? Nothing, not even God's promises to us, not even His gifts to us, should be of more value and importance to us than the giver. Okay, God wants to reign supreme. Thirdly, uh, I think He's asking Abraham, what is my worth to you? What is my value to you? How much do you treasure me? Uh, So it's not just a place of rank or position. It's not just a place of priority, but it's really a place of affection of worth, right? Uh, worship comes from that word, worthship. How much worth do we ascribe to God? You know, I wish I wish that worship were as easy as singing a song. You know, we just praise God through music. Uh, and, and praising God is a great thing. And praise, thankfully, is as easy as singing a song. It's as easy as reading a psalm. It's as easy as speaking words. Okay, that's praise. That's thanksgiving. That's not worship. Okay, worth worship. Worship involves cost. Okay, uh, in in order for something to have value to uh, to us, it has to cost us something, right? What did it cost you this morning to praise God in song? Well, it did cost you a little. You had to get up this morning, <laughs> which for some of you is a sacrifice of worship. Right? You had to get dressed. Some of you had to take, actually take a shower, you know, uh, get cleaned up. Some of you had to dress in clothes that you're not real comfortable in, you know, uh, just because you feel like that's more honoring. So there is some cost involved. But it didn't cost us a lot, right? But if God is of ultimate worth to us, then God's saying, how much, how much would you pay? How much am I worth to you? Right? We're, Worship, true worship always costs us something. It always involves paying a price, right? That's the parable of the, uh, uh, the pearl of great price. In order to obtain it, what would you give? What would you pay? What would you give up? What would you sacrifice to obtain this gift? Um, and there's always a discrepancy between what we think something could potentially be worth and what we'll actually pay for it, right? So Thai, this is Thai real estate, okay? I don't know if you've had this discussion with your landlord, but... Our first landlord of our first house, every time it came time to renew our lease, uh, had this great offer. She says, don't rent the house for me. Just buy it. Just buy the house. It was an old house, and it was a nice house, but not that nice. And she would say, I'll sell it to you, special price for you, 12 million baht. (laughs) Okay, now that was what the house was worth to her. And I guarantee no bank, no person in their right mind would have paid a third that, right? Right? There's what we think it's worth. There's what we would actually pay. Right? Well, how much will we really pay? And that's what God's asking here. What would you really pay? What would be the cost? What would be the price you would pay to show your worship of me? How much I am worth to you? Well, the cost 
is extreme, right? The cost is incredible. Uh, would you give the thing you love more than anything in the whole world to have me, right? Does God ask the same thing of us? I believe he does. I believe that's what worship is. God asks us, what am I worth to you? Will you give an offer to me the thing that is most precious and valuable to you as an offering? Will you give it up to me? Well, what is, how does Abraham respond to this request? Well, his response really is amazing. Uh, it says in verse 3, Early the next morning, Abraham got up, he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. He chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Um, so Abraham responds firstly with obedience. Okay, uh, And this is characteristic. It's kind of a hallmark of Abraham. Every time God asks him to do something, we see Abraham getting up the crack of dawn the next day to do it. Right Now, if this had been me, I'd say, well, God, I think I need to pray about this. Let me, let me pray about this for a few weeks, months, maybe a few years, you know. Not Abraham. God has clearly spoken. He doesn't need to pray about it anymore. He doesn't need to discern God's will. He doesn't need to ask if this is the right thing. He knows what God is asking. And he immediately responds by doing in obedience what God asked. And we see this repeatedly in, in uh, Abraham's life. He gets up crack of dawn, right? And he is resolved, as difficult as it is, he is resolved to follow through on this. And he begins making steps. And not only is he resolved, uh, he gets up early. But you see him making thorough preparations about this, right? He gets a donkey, he gets servants, he gets the fire, uh, he cuts firewood. Now, this is what I would have been thinking. I would have been thinking, okay, yeah, God, I want to do this. I want to obey you. But I may not have prepared so well, and I may have accidentally forgot the matches and the firewood. And I go on the journey and I get there and I say, oh, what do you know? God, I, I want to do this. It's my heart and my intention to do this. But shucks, I don't have firewood. I'll try again later, right? Uh, and that's not, that's not what you see with Abraham. He's resolved on this, right? He prepares, he plans, he's committed to this. Okay? He's thinking it through. Um, he is making sure that he has all that's necessary to fulfill what God has asked of him. He's obedient. Um, and this obedience is this, this, this test of obedience is not easy. It says that it takes Abraham three days to get to this mountain. Uh, can you imagine that three-day trip? I mean, can you imagine, you know, uh, how much easier it would have been if God had just said, you know, I want you to take Isaac out behind the barn right now and offer him up, you know. But no, it's got to be a three-day journey, right, far away. So it's Abraham, you know, walking through the wilderness with Isaac step-by-step by his side for three days contemplating this, you know. And I can just imagine those thoughts just flooding Abraham's mind continually when it came to that moment. I'm sure every waking thought and every sleeping moment, you know, that moment of him cutting his son's throat uh, just haunted him, you know, step by step, knowing that every step takes him one step closer to this horrible moment. And every step he must decide, do I go forward with this or do I turn and run from God, right? For three days he endures this. 
uh, every step having to make fresh and anew his resolve and his decision, his commitment to walk in obedience, right? Um, and so we see through this uh, just Abraham's resolve. He looks up, God shows him the mountain. And you just get this sense of the reality of it sinking in deeper and deeper, coming closer and closer. Uh, so the first thing, he, he's obedient. Second thing, it says that um, he sees a place in the distance and he says to his servant, stay here with the donkeys. The boy and I will travel a little further and we will worship there and then we will come right back. Okay? Well, that's kind of a strange statement for a guy who's about to go kill his son. Um, what's going on there? Is he is he waffling some? Is he not so sure he's going to carry through on it? I don't think so. I think he's t- gone. Uh, he, he, he's he's going too much in the wrong direction, right? His commitment to go up to the place is his commitment to follow through. But he says that we're going to come back. What's that about? He goes on. It says that he. Uh, places the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carries the fire and the knife as the two of them walk together. Uh, Again, amazing picture. Get the picture here. Uh, He puts on his son the sacrifice, the lamb, the one who's about to be sacrificed, the victim, the the wood. Right. So you have this picture of the victim carrying this wood. By the way, in in Hebrew, the, uh, the word wood can also be tree. Great, amazing picture of Jesus carrying his own cross, right? Here's Isaac carrying, in a sense, his own cross. And what's Abraham carrying? He takes up what? The knife and the fire. He is clearly the sacrificer. He is clearly the one offering the gift, right? And as he walks again, every step, now he's carrying these two instruments in his hand. Uh, He is holding this knife. Uh, He is feeling it in his hands. And he's reminded step by step of what is about to take place. Um, And the author just brilliantly builds this drama and the agony of this moment. And then as if that's not enough, okay, if it's not enough that you are walking with your son who's carrying the wood you're about to burn him on and you're carrying the fire knife in your hand, it gets worse. Uh, The boy says, Isaac says, Father, Okay, you know, just imagine those words, right? Father, uh, you know, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where's the lamb? Right? I think, I think this is the reason God did not make animals speak. We would all be vegetarians. Okay, this is not fair that your sacrifice talks to you, all right? Um, and He uses these words, Father, Father, to you who I trust with my whole life and being. You know, this is just a little weird here. You prepared everything. You've been so thorough to make sure, thorough to make sure everything's provided. But I don't get it. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Right? What does what does Abraham say to that? Uh, what would you say to that? <laughs> right? He cannot bring himself to say, Isaac, it's you. I'm going here to offer you. Right? So what is he saying? He says, God will provide a sheep for the offering. God will provide. Literally, the Hebrew word is the same word that's used for see. And it kind of has the idea here of God will see to it. God will see to it. Okay, again, is Abraham waffling here? Is he, 
Is he not convinced that this is what God has asked him? I don't think so. Um, what is going on here? I think Abraham is really walking forward with unflinching faith, right? Uh, God has promised to Abraham repeatedly, I am going to give you a son, a special son, a son of promise. Uh, he confirmed that that son of promise was Isaac. Okay, He confirmed it, that it would come through Sarah. And Sarah gave birth to this child at a very old age. Okay, uh, There's no other child. This is the one. And Abraham knows that. And God has confirmed over and over again and promised and re-promised that all of his promises would be fulfilled through Isaac. So what's what's Abraham doing here? Well, I think I don't think Abraham knows has any clue what's going to happen. I don't think he has any idea what's going on, but I do think Abraham knows this. God will see to it. Right? This seems impossible, right? And as as Abraham walks forward, on the one hand, I think he's wrestling with what it's going to be for him to take the life of his own son. But the only thing that keeps him stepping forward in that is the promise that God has said, I will bless you through this son. You will have many offsprings through this son, right? And Abraham's putting this together. He goes, well, my son's going to be dead, but he's going to be the father of many nations. Somehow, God's going to work this out. He's going to bring my son back to life. He's going to do some miracle. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know this. God is good to his promises, right? So we see Abraham walking forward in faith, but we uh, obedience, but we see him also walking forward with faith. And in fact, I would say his obedience was made possible by faith, right? Uh, without that confidence, how could he do this? He had unflinching faith that God would take care of it, that God would provide, that God would do the impossible, that God will keep his promises, right? Um, and those two things, faith and obedience, go together. Right? You cannot, as James says, you can't have one without the other. True faith will always respond with implicit Im- obedience, right? Because it takes God at His word that He's good to carry through on all that He's promised. And so Abraham uh, really rests confidently in that truth, and that's how he can go forward in faith, in, in faith and obedience. Well, then the moment comes, and and the moment comes when Abraham now must only uh, obey, take steps of obedience, he must not only believe God, but he must act upon that faith. You know, how do we know God? he had such faith? Well, we know it because he acted on it. Uh, it says, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar, and he arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. Okay, so he takes all the steps. He takes action. He builds an altar. He prepares the wood. He binds his son Okay, now at this point, you know, um, even Isaac, I don't know how old he was. He may have been a young teenager. Uh, even he's figuring, the, he's figuring this out now. And interestingly, uh, you know, Abraham's 100 plus years old. It wouldn't have taken a lot for Isaac to get away, you know, as the lights were dawning. When Dad says, hold out your hands, and he starts tying him up, Abraham could, uh, Isaac could have run, right? But he yields to his father, right? Uh, not that that would have made it any easier for Abraham. Uh, he yields his son. How much easier it would have been for Abraham to sneak up behind him, but he doesn't do that. He ties him, he binds him, and he lays his son on the wood. And then it says, Abraham reaches his hand out and takes the knife. Right? And I can just 
uh, picture and imagine uh, Abraham's heart just pounding, right? And the, the reality is no matter, no matter how much you believe, no matter how much faith assures you of something, you know, following through something like this is uh, it's mind-boggling, right? And uh, he knows that the moment has come. And that he, he, his son is dead. His son is offered to God. And he takes up the knife and he raises it to slit his son's throat. Literally, it says, to slaughter his son. There's a word that was used for sacrificing animals, right? He reaches his hand. He steadies himself. And he takes action to do exactly what God says. Okay, at this point, Abraham has in every sense given up his son, right? There is now nothing standing between him and all that God asked him to do. But thankfully, thankfully, God inter- intervenes. It says, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, I love this picture. It says, the um, angel of the Lord cries out from heaven. It's like the moment is so critical, God doesn't even have time to come out of heaven to do this, right? He sends an email. Um, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds as he did in verse 1. Lord, here I am. Right. Stop! Don't lay a hand on the child. Do not harm the child. Do not do anything. Why? Because now I see that you, what? You fear the Lord. Okay, now I see that you fear the Lord. Um, you fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Uh, it says that, and I love this, what, what it comes down to when God says you pass the test, he names the test. He says, now I know that you fear me. Interesting, of all the words God God could have picked, he didn't say, I see now that you will obey me. No, he didn't say that. I see now that you worship me. No, Uh, that you love me. He says that you fear me, right? You fear me. Now, I don't know why I use this word, because I don't understand this word. Do you feel that way? It's like, you know, you read through the Old Testament, God uses it a lot. Fear the Lord, fear the Lord your God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does this word mean, right? Well, I think Abraham becomes a living definition of this word, right? Now, of course, the word can mean to be emotionally afraid of something, right? So if, you're, if you have a close call, you almost get run over, you know, almost have a car accident, there's a sense of terror, dread, fear, right? Uh, that is one meaning of this word. But clearly in Scripture, when the word is used, it doesn't mean that. Okay? It's not an emotional fear. And throughout the many passages where this word is used, including here, it really has a sense of tremendous awe and reverence of God. Okay? It's a sense that God is amazingly grand and awesome. He is, in a sense, awful. He's full of awe and wonder. He is majestic. He is king. Uh, one of the times, one of the analogies for me that helps me think about this is uh, one time I had climbed this mountain and... Um, it was, you know, a large mountain, 14,000 some feet. And uh, we got up on top of it, way above tree line. And normally one of the thrills of climbing a peak like this is you get to see like forever. You know, it's just this huge panorama. We get up and there's this huge cloud bank that's descended on the mountain. And we get there, we're just in this fog, right? And not only that, it's thundering and lightning. It's one of those deals where the air is literally alive with electricity. And we can't touch anything because it's all static electricity which does create a certain kind of fear because you wonder how long it is before a lightning bolt just goes through you. Um, so, and, it, and then it begins to just, this driving sleet starts just pelting us. 
So we kind of cr- crouched down behind this boulder that sat up on top of this peak and wait out this storm. And we're sitting kind of, you know, we're just in a fog. You can't see anything, right? We can't see like five feet away. Well, almost as instant as it came in, just within a second, literally, the cloud lifted and blew away. And all of a sudden, we were just back out in the sunshine again, just like that. And uh, the first thing I saw is that two feet away from me was this ledge that dropped off over 1,000 feet, right? All of a sudden, I realized that I've been sitting all this time just, you know, milling around next to this enormous drop-off, this huge drop-off. And I felt fear, okay? Now, I wasn't afraid that I was going to fall off because I was a safe distance away, but I felt this sense of awe and dread. It was like, wow, you know, just wow, right? Well, that's some hint or some glimpse of what it means, I think, to, to stand in awe of God, right? It's the sense of the magnitude and grandeur and wonder of God. But more than just that experience, that experience comes close, but still not quite it, because that didn't demand me that I do anything, right? Well, maybe take a step back, <laughs> right? Uh, but even that wasn't necessary because I wasn't in a dangerous position, right? Uh, but the on-wonder of God is so overwhelming to us personally. It's so huge. It's so awesome that it demands something of us, right? It demands that we revere it, that we respect it, that we stand in awe of it, that we honor, right? When it comes down to it, it means that we, to fear God means that we we are compelled to obedience, right? In light of something so beautiful, so wonderful, so glorious. We can't imagine doing anything but wanting to seek to please and honor this being, right? So fear of the Lord that's used in the Old Testament always implies some sense of doing something about it, of being obedient, okay? That is way different than the obedience that complies to just a list of rules, okay? When you go to school, when you drive on the roads, you're supposed to, you know, wear a motorcycle helmet. You're supposed to drive the speed limit. You're supposed to drive the right direction, right? Well, you know, to obey that is not done out of reverence or fear, maybe fear that you get a fine or something, right? But this is a different kind of thing on a whole other level, something that we long to do because we are so enthralled and enamored and so overwhelmed by this thing that we long to respond in obedience. It's something we delight to do, right? Uh, the word fear implies worship. Right? Something so wonderfully awesome would be worth everything to us. Right? We can't imagine anything that could compare with something so grand and marvelous. So we would give up everything to have this. Right? That's fear. Uh, we would love it. We would adore it. We stand to revere something so incredibly beautiful and good. And all those ideas are captured in that one word, fear. We would trust in it because it's powerful and strong and mighty and able to do able to fulfill its word, right? Great word, fear the Lord. See, it captures all those things. And really to fear the Lord is to weave together those four things, obedience, worship, love, faith, right? That's what it means to fear God. And Abraham here pictures as a living definition what that word is. And he passes the test. And he shows himself... um, to truly fear God, right? Uh, and, and the cool thing is not only did those things, not only demonstrate those things, but I really believe that it was those things, it was that fear of God that enabled him to pass the test, right? 
It was because he trusted God, because he loved God, because he stood in awe and wondered of God, that he could be obedient. Well, God then responds to Abraham. Uh, he gives back his son, uh, who was as good as dead. He really, in many ways, you know, uh, Isaac is a picture of resurrection, of getting new life. You know, it was, it was this close, right? And he gives him back his son to life. Uh, secondly, he um, provides a substitute. And Abraham looks up and here's this ram caught in a thicket. And uh, he says specifically that now he can offer this ram as a substitute for his son. Great picture of a substitutionary sacrifice of one who gives his life in place of another. Right? Does this sound familiar? It's not to sound a lot like Jesus, right? Finally, uh, and most importantly, God again restates his promise to bless Abraham. He says this. He says, uh, Abraham looked up. He saw the ram. Uh, he took the ram and he sacrificed it in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place uh, Yahweh Yirah, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Right? To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly, I will surely bless you. Okay, before God said he would bless him. Now he says, I really, really, really will bless you. Okay, that's the emphasis of that word. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, and your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. So not only will you be a nation, but you will be a nation of conquerors. Okay, God blesses and he expands the blessing. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Uh, God gives Abraham everything, right? Now, here's a principle. And at first, you may not agree with this principle. I want you to think about it, okay? This is the principle. God teaches here, through Abraham, that God cannot really give us anything until we give him everything. Okay? Think about that. God cannot give us anything until we give him everything. God says right here, because, because you have obeyed, because you have feared me, because you have followed through, now I can really bless you. Now, some of you should be thinking, oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold the bus. Oh, hold the bus, wait. Okay, I have a problem with this. And the problem is this. This sounds an awful lot like works, right? Are you telling me that we can earn salvation, that Abraham earned this, that God could not carry out his promises until Abraham proved himself a good enough person? That's heresy, right? Well, and that is heresy. Amen, right? Yes, that's, what I'm, that's not what I'm saying, though, and that's not what's p- being pictured here. The picture is this. God promised Abraham everything free and clear, and God did it back in chapter 12, and Abraham wasn't even a God worshiper. When he was nobody, when he, had, when he was a pagan guy who worshiped false gods, and God called him out and says, I've called you out to bless you and give you all this stuff as a free gift, unmerited. You don't deserve it. I'm just giving it to you, right? So what does God mean here when he says, because you've obeyed, now you'll get it? Okay, is God confused? What, what is this? Well, I think the deal is this. God's gifts, all of God's gifts, are a matter of his grace given freely. But here's the deal. A gift must be received, right? And God's gifts are so huge 
that it takes both hands to receive them. Right? And God says, if you want to receive my gifts, you have got to let go of what you are holding on to and with both hands grab hold of my gift for you. Right? It's kind of the classic scene in the movie. A lot of movies I've seen this scene, you know, where at the end of the movie, right at the moment of climax, uh, the hero of the story is hanging from a cliff that they've just fallen off of, right? And with one hand, they're, they, they, they're grabbing hold of a rescuer who has them slipping, you know, as their wet, slippery fingers are sliding and they're slipping away. They have a hold of that on one hand. But with their other hand, they're doing what? Right? They're grasping for some treasure, some sword or some ring or some piece of gold or some fortune, right? right? And, and the deal is the, the rescuer can't pull them up with the two fingers that they're just hanging on by, right? It takes what? It takes both hands, and so they have a choice. They've got to either grab for the gold or they've got to grab for the rescuer. And varying, depending on the movie, it kind of goes both ways, you know. Sometimes they go for the gold and drop to their death. Bad move. Sometimes they give up the pursuit of the gold, the treasure, and they grab hold with both hands. And in the last second before they drop, right, they pull them up miraculously. You know, this little 90-pound girl pulls up this 300-pound guy, and only on TV, right? Well, that's the picture, you know. Uh, God gives his gifts freely and abundantly, unmerited and undeserved on our part. But we've got to receive it. How do we receive it? Well, the only way to receive God's gifts is to give up everything, let go of everything that possesses us on this earth, and grab a hold of him and him alone, right? That's the message here. Abraham, you know, God, God pass, Abraham passes the test because he let go of even his son, he let go of everything on this earth that could hold him, and he grabbed hold with both hands of, on God, believing that God was what? The one who could provide. And the, the good news is this. When we let go of everything on this earth, God is then able to give us everything back, right? He gets everything back. God can bless him when we give up and we let go of all that possesses us on this earth, and we are possessed by God alone where he is everything to us, uh, where it's not about the gifts. It is about the giver. It's about not only what he provides, but that he, he is the provider. Right? Does God want us to stop loving everybody? No. But he wants us to so love him first that loving everybody else is, a, is an act of worship of loving him. Okay, and Abraham pictures that so beautifully here. Let me just close with one last thought. Uh, and Abraham is certainly an example of us of faith, of fearing God, of obedience, of what that picture looks like. But he is also an illustration to us of something else. He is so much an illustration of God's own heart, of who God is. And, you know, it's a fair question. If God puts us to the test, isn't it fair that we should put God to the test? Well, the Israelites tried that, and it was a bad plan, so I wouldn't recommend it. However... For sake of argument here, let me just ask the question, um, you know, what is our worth to God? You know, whether or not we put God to the test or not, the reality is that's a question every one of us thinks about. What is my value to God? Right? Um, and how we answer that question determines really the foundation of our life. Right? Our identity is based on how we answer that question. What am I worth to God? 
And if you answer that question, well, I don't think I'm worth very much. Well, then the foundation of your life will be very fragile. And you will try to find identity and purpose and meaning and worth in many, many other things. In how you look and how smart you are and how honored you are by other people and how wealthy you are and how safe and secure you are. Right? A million ways we answer that question. But if we believe with all our heart that we experience in our soul that we are of incredible worth to God, that He values and treasures us uh, immensely, that becomes a rock-solid foundation you build your life on. And nothing can shake that, right? Nothing can shake that. So how do we answer that question? What is our worth to God? Well, if worth is determined on how much you will pay for something, uh, then Abraham becomes a great example of how much God paid for us. Uh, God as a father sacrificed his own son. And as you picture these images of Abraham dragging his son up the mountain with the wood on his back, carrying the knife in his hands, and Abraham picturing this moment when he's got to take this knife and cut his son's throat and hope and pray that he quickly bleeds to death before he sets the wood to fire and burns up the body of his own child. Okay, if you can picture that in your mind. Um... That is exactly what God the Father did for us. The only difference was nobody stopped him, right? Uh, And you see, God the Father, because he's God, because he's sovereign, because he's king over all, it was in his hand and his power and his authority to save his son or not, right? And he did not save his son. And not only that, Scripture tells us that he poured out on his son his very own wrath, right? Uh, God gave up his son. And so we got this picture of Abraham who has to choose. Uh, Abraham in this test has to choose between the love for his son and the love for his God. And you see this heart-wrenching decision that he must make and carry out. And we see God the Father facing that same kind of choice. Do I love my son or do I love the world I created? Right? And what did God do? He gave his son. He sacrificed his own son. Not because he didn't love his son. He loved his son infinitely. But because you and I were of that kind of worth to him. Because we are of that kind of value to him. That he would give his own son for us. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, we come before you to give you thanks. And Lord, we just ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see uh, a little bit more clearly uh, your incredible love for us. That you did indeed uh, give up your own son. That you made this incredible sacrifice because you so love the world. And Father, we can, we can only just give you praise. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be people who fear you, who understand what that word means, and who become, as Abraham was, the embodiment of people who fear God, because we are so convinced of your love for us. 
as Paul wrote in Romans, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Indeed, Father, You have promised to give us everything. The world is ours. All eternity is ours. All the riches of Your kingdom are ours. And all You ask is that we receive this free gift by letting go of everything and grabbing fully hold of You. Lord, help us to have such a sense of awe and wonder at, at who You are and what You've done that we can't imagine doing anything else but abandoning all to take hold of You. But God, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.